Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. I'm your host. This week, I'm pleased to introduce Amy Schaffline, who's the Executive Director of United Housing, and a very special guest from the D.C. area, Antoine Thompson, who's the National Executive Director of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers. After the break, we're going to be talking to Cole Bradley, who's one of our regular commentators. So stay tuned for that after we talk to Amy and Antoine. So welcome, Amy. Welcome, Antoine. Hi. Thanks for having me, Emily. Thank you. Thank you uh, for having me, Amy. It's always a privilege and honor to be in your presence as well. So, Amy, before um, we talk to Antoine, just... I hope our our listeners are familiar with United Housing, but perhaps not. So, just give us the an executive summary of what United Housing is all about. Sure. So, United Housing is a twenty five year old organization. We are a nonprofit housing developer. We are also a HUD certified housing counseling agency, and that means we provide home ownership education, all aspects of uh, home ownership and how to become a homeowner. So, we go through the beginning. Um, about credit, budgeting, through the process of working with a realtor and lender, and then also uh, post-purchase counseling, which is all about home maintenance, um, estate planning, those kinds of things. And uh, we also are a local uh, nonprofit lender. So we have first mortgage programs. These are uh, programs that are small, what we call a small dollar program. So it is a um, called the Cherry Mortgage, and it is uh, it helps individuals buy a home that is less than $70,000. And we also provide access to down payment and closing costs, which are often barriers to home ownership. So we're all about helping folks get through uh, their journey and on to become a homeowner. Great. And I should have told our listeners that the topic today is promoting Black home ownership in Memphis, and specifically some partnerships here locally that are working on that. So Antoine, just tell us about the National Association of Real Estate Brokers. I think people have heard of realtors, but uh, your group is different. And I'm also interested in uh, a little bit of the history, how you got started. Yeah. Again, thank you for having me. Um, the National Association of Real Estate Brokers is the oldest African-American real estate trade association. Uh, we go by the letters of N-A-R-E-B. Uh, our association was founded in 1947 during the height of discrimination and, and segregation in the country. And we were founded in 1947. African-Americans cannot <clears throat> be members of the realtor organization. And so we, we were founded uh, in Tampa, Florida in 1947, in the hot summer day of July in, in Tampa, Florida in 1947. Our motto was democracy and housing. Our members are, are, are real estate professionals, 
Uh, some are agents, some are brokers, some are property managers, and the whole uh, spectrum of real estate professionals around the country. We were founded in 1947. Uh, we we were um, open to all races and creeds and colors, and we and we are uh, today. Uh, so we focus a lot on <clears throat> diversity and inclusion, uh, trying to close the racial wealth gap uh, through home ownership, and really making sure that we are there for our members and the communities that they serve. We focus a lot on policy issues, membership development, uh, as I stated earlier, diversity and inclusion, and also trying to reduce that massive gap in home ownership, which as of September 30th is uh, 46% for African-Americans and 76% for white Americans. So we've been involved with a lot of legislative, regulatory, and industry-related matters for 73 years. Wow. That's a, that's a, an impressive history. And that thank you for sharing that data because I was looking at your State of Housing in Black America report that you put out annually, I guess, I did see those percentages and also noted that um, locally, and Amy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the homeownership rate for uh, for whites is 64% and for blacks, it's 40%. Yeah, it's a, it's a very big gap in, uh, in your community. Uh, and, 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 and part of that is you know, when when we were founded in 1947, uh, African-Americans could not participate in a lot of programs. Number one, uh, in many homes in Memphis and across the country, it was illegal for real estate professionals uh, to sell homes to African-Americans. They put their life at risk. Uh, and then the federal government had programs uh, that we know about today uh, that were not available to African-Americans like FHA mortgages. Uh, like uh, the 30-year mortgage that you can get from a conventional mortgage that's guaranteed or uh, by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So these programs um, contributed uh, to the uh, racial wealth gap and the home ownership gap in the country. And then at the same time, for all the way up to the 60s and some communities to the 1970s, uh, you couldn't even sell a property to African-Americans because they had this thing called a racial covenant or deed restriction that said you, as long as this, uh, these properties are in these neighborhoods, you cannot sell a house to a black person. So, uh, so, so you had all these different things and zoning and, and laws that were on the books by the federal government. The federal government said that if if you wanted your 30-year mortgage to be insured by the federal government, uh, you can't use, do it for, uh, you can't um, lend to a black person bank. And, and so the banks for you know a good 20, 30 years uh, would not um, do that, uh, provide those mortgages. So that allowed for communities to accumulate wealth coming out of the Great Depression uh, as, as, as cities um, increase population in some areas and decrease in many, and the suburbs exploded. Suburban America is a creation of the federal government because the federal government um, provided housing and provided 30-year mortgages and financing to for people to buy homes in the suburbs. Uh, so, and, and built a lot of roads to help people get out. And, and the roads and the highways, right? 
So it didn't happen by accident. It was a, there are a lot of good books out there like Crabgrass Frontier, uh, uh, The Color of Law, a, a number of good books that talk about how the suburbs were created um, and created an unequal society. So that happened only in Memphis, but it happened around the country and we're paying the price for that. But, you know, I think as we're very resilient as a country and I think we're in this phase of how do we fix some of the problems of yesterday. We know it just didn't happen overnight, but a lot of great people are doing some great work so that we can turn these things around. Well, your your comments are just very illuminating because I think certainly in Memphis, I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of community investment officers at banks, and it's very easy to fall back on the excuses of, oh, people have bad credit. They don't have enough collateral. And I mean, certainly, I'm sure those are legitimate. You probably see, you know better than me, Amy. I'm sure you see a lot of potential customers um, that have challenges in that area, but there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of um, discussion really about some of these um, long-term forms of discrimination that have set whole, whole groups of our population behind others. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, and I think the other thing that I think what we must do is um, provide information to these lenders and, and elected officials and other community stakeholders about the number of, of, of African-Americans and Black people in Memphis that are mortgage ready. You know, not all the folks in Memphis have bad credit and no money saved up and don't have a job. You know, so there, there are at least, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can pull them. But I know there's at least 20,000 plus African-Americans in the greater Memphis area that have uh, good credit, that are mortgage ready, have low debt to income ratios. So we can't let those folks off the hook. We've got to make sure that when we have that conversation with them, that why, what, what are you doing wrong? Um, or what do you need to do more of to expand access to credit and capital for those people that are mortgage ready? And then when people do apply and they do get approved, we need to make sure that there's, there, there's fairness and equitable treatment uh, in the mortgage pricing that exists in the country as well. Because African-Americans that do get a mortgage are often overcharged. And then those that apply are often uh, denied at twice the rate. So they get charged more on their mortgage. They get charged more on their um, on their uh, in, uh, car insurance, their homeowner's insurance, their life insurance. And then when they try to sell the house, it's undervalued. And it requires reform because everyone knows in their respective industries that we're not doing uh, enough and we're not being fair enough and risk, uh, and we hide behind what is risk. Uh, and you have some people that never had a fire in their house, never had their house broken in, but they're paying higher mortgage insurance. I mean, they're paying higher property insurance. Amy, you want you wanted to jump in? Here. Well, I I just yes, exactly right, all of that. And uh, I also want to say that you know a lot of um, banks number one aren't located in the neighborhoods, right? And then another thing is they may not have loan officers on the ground either. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about you know people not knowing that they may qualify, uh, they're also not really they're, they're not really you know ed- 
talk to a lot. You know what I mean? They're not like there's this information gap and a lack of knowledge around what kind of loan products are out there. And too often, um, black neighborhoods are targeted for those higher interest loans or, you know, the, like with the subprime crisis. And what I wanted to say was going back to the, what you started with, Antoine, the discriminatory lending and discriminatory housing policies from back in the day, um, and just more recently with the subprime crisis, has also led to a devaluation of black neighborhoods and therefore a distress in homeownership as an institution in a way. Um, I know Dr. Perry at the Brookings Institution has talked about that a lot, quantifying the devaluation of homes. And so when you have wealth building not happening for many African-American homeowners, you also can get this distrust in homeownership that, you know, we may need to you know address better too in the messaging. And I know, Antoine, you've talked a lot about communicating black homeownership. Yeah, I mean, those, thank you, uh, Amy, for that point, those points. I would say a couple of things that are really important as well. So on the appraisal side, uh, most people are not aware that African-Americans represent about 13 to 14% of the population. But on the real estate professional side, we represent less than 5% of real estate agents and brokers in the country. And then when we get down to appraiser, appraisers in the country, we're less than 1% of those. When we talk about mortgage loan officers, we're about 1% or 2%. So, so the industry needs greater diversity and that impacts the industry in a lot of ways. Um, so when we talk about how you value neighborhoods, when we talk about wanting to go in areas that you may not feel comfortable going, uh, when we talk about conversations around denial rates, uh, African-Americans, maybe, maybe the loan officer does want to give a loan, but maybe the person's going in with a preconceived notion that they don't want to give me a loan. Maybe the, uh, maybe the loan officer asks him, too many questions that they maybe they don't ask other people. Maybe sometimes that's the standard practice for that bank compared to another lender, right? And so we have this, you know, what's real versus what's perceived. Uh, and then we have this massive gap about, um, you know, the fact that in the industry, we had, it, it's, it's very difficult uh, for African-Americans to break through. We need to do more education, we need to do more training. And then we have these policies at the federal and state level that are very prohibitive. Uh, so for example, uh, many states have down payment assistance programs. Some of those down payment assistance programs are either slow or cumbersome. And then some have underwriting requirements uh, that don't align with certain federal programs. And so for example, in some states, uh, you may have a down payment assistance program where it only is eligible for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae products, whereas a lot of African-American buyers are um, at, go FHA. And most law, state lawmakers may be supporting these programs and may not know that their constituents are being locked out of their state programs. So how do we adjust those? The same thing is true when we talk about uh, diversity in the, in the mortgage industry. We've got to do more to get, especially in this digital space, to get uh, more people into the industry because there's a, there are over 3 million African Americans that are mortgage ready. Uh, there are tens of thousands in Memphis alone, and we've got to get them onto the path of home ownership. And that home ownership might be, it may be they want to 
a duplex or a two family, or it might be they want a, uh, a four unit or something like that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. I'm talking to Amy Schaffline, who's the Executive Director of United Housing, and Antoine Thompson, who's with the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, and we're talking about promoting Black home ownership in Memphis. So that's a great, I think we did a great job of sort of setting the stage. Um, and then let's turn to some potential uh, programs or or policy solutions that would help us uh, increase home ownership among African American families. We talked about down payment assistance. We can elaborate on that and other things as well. I'm sure that both of you would like to see that can help us move the needle in the way we want it to. Yeah, I can start. I I think one thing is. Um, I mentioned earlier, we're a nonprofit lender. And I think one thing that we always do is look at credit differently. Um, and we use all what they quote unquote alternative credit. So things like, you know, your monthly rent or your other monthly payments that you make, and we put that towards your score. And I think that there's a lot of work that we can do around uh, the FICO score and credit and kind of rethinking uh, credit scores uh, in this country. And, the, and so that's something that we I know talk a lot about and what we look at as nonprofit lenders um, in terms of risk there. Uh, so credit evaluation is something we want to look at. Yeah, I, I, I want to just dovetail on uh, what uh, Amy's talking about. So uh, the Federal Housing Finance Agency is looking to uh, update some of its credit models that they use to underwrite mortgages. It's still very outdated. Uh, uh, the models that they're currently using for underwriting for, for mortgage loans dates back to the early 2000s. Uh, so I want you, I want your listeners to really think about that. I mean, think about how much technology uh, we have used. I mean, we used to have this thing called fax machines for all the young people that don't know about that, where, you know, you send a document to someone via phone line and it comes out a copy machine. Uh, uh, now we scan those things. We don't. We don't do that. We take a picture and text it to you, right? Uh, and so, uh, so technology has evolved so much. We got Google, Facebook. We got smartphones where we can see each other. But we have a a, a lending and mortgage system that's still doing underwriting uh, based on a model that's over 15 years old. And so we know that uh, people don't use landline phones in their home anymore. Uh, uh, people don't use fax machines anymore. People barely use, use the post office. And so it's time for the mortgage industry to update how it underwrites, how it evaluates risk uh, for mortgages. Can the person pay? Can they show they have the ability to pay? Uh, that's the number one thing. And some of these models that they use on, uh, for credit scores is definitely obsolete and leaves so many people behind. I also think that down payment assistance and closing cost assistance, just access to capital. When you're talking about small businesses, you we talk a lot about getting access to capital. Well, I think that's this, similarly in home ownership. Not everybody may have access to that down payment or um or even the mortgage loan itself. And so having homeowners also get that access to, to capital to get jump started. it is an investment, right? Uh, the home is an investment. So having them to get some capital to make that investment 
is also something that we need more programs like that. The city of Memphis has a great program, but it does run out of money. It's underfunded. You know, we yeah. also have access to, to down payment funds, but again, those are limited. So, yeah. So, so I want to, Amy, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that, you, you, you know, one of the things that people should know that are listening is that municipal programs are tremendously undercapitalized. It doesn't matter what city you're in for the most part in the country, especially major cities like Memphis, uh, the money runs out. And, and so once they get it, they can move through, you know, giving people money, but it runs out. So in this post George Floyd environment, when we think about uh, what can people do to help with the racial wealth gap and racial equity in the country, uh, supporting uh, down payment assistance programs that are run by government and certain nonprofit organizations, because there are a lot of nonprofits that have down payment assistance programs, but they don't spend the money. But then, as Amy just indicated, there are other programs that they can't keep the money in long enough. They, they have a waiting list. So by the time they do get the money, it's gone. So I would say to all of the folks who are listening, if you have the resources, call someone like Amy or call your city council member and say, hey, I'd like to donate to this uh, down payment assistance fund. Or they can call an ARAB and say, hey, I know you are helping with uh, people buy a house. Uh, we'd love to donate so you can give somebody that's trying to buy a house. A lady called yesterday from California. I got to call her before I get off the phone. She wants to donate to help somebody buy a house. I mean, that's awesome because if a person goes to a home buyer class, there should be a rainbow at the some gold at the end of the rainbow, right? And that little bit of $2,500 or $5,000 or $10,000 for a person that's mortgage ready uh, and that just needs that little help, benefits of you know owning a home are significant because when a person, a black person that owns a home, their kids are less likely to get in trouble. Their kids are more likely to do better in school their kids and their parents are more likely to live longer have a, and live a healthier lifestyle. And over 40% of businesses start in the home. Get involved and, and help people become a homeowner. It's one of the best things that you can do. So just to wrap up, Antoine, I wanted to ask you about something you mentioned earlier, which was the lack of diversity in different segments of the real estate industry. Um, real estate agents, appraisers, um, bankers, of course, I'm familiar with that. So what programs does NAREB have to address that, if any, or what policy changes or programs would you like to see? Because those numbers need to come up, obviously. And Amy, if there's anything going on locally, obviously I'd like to hear from you as well. But start with you, Antoine. Sure, sure. Uh, first, um, again, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, we are actually the association, National Association of Real Estate Brokers. We are uh, uh, the first of the year going to be standing up a new program uh, with a partner. Uh, we will be offering scholarships uh, uh, up to about $5,000 per um, uh, person that wants to go into the real estate industry. And so we're really excited about that. Um, that will help with a lot of the startup costs uh, to go into the uh, real estate industry. So we're really looking forward to that um, scholarship. It's going to be a black real estate scholarship program. If people are interested in supporting 
on that program. Uh, we can create multiple scholarship programs. Uh, so that'll be starting in January. Uh, secondly, we do offer um, online classes for people that want to go into real estate at NAREB.com. Uh, and then we offer a lot of uh, training uh, for people that are in the industry. Um, so, and we have local boards of our association or chapters in over a lot of cities. So for example, in Memphis, we have a very great chapter head by Cheryl Muhammad, uh, local board president of our chapter in uh, Memphis. So they can, anyone that's thinking about going into real estate or one of the careers of real estate uh, in that local chapter in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, they have uh, members that are, are agents, brokers, property managers, real estate developers, mortgage officers, insurance agents, you name it. Uh, so, and we also uh, need to, one of the things that we need to see more of is getting uh, companies uh, to have like a, a, what they call the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule is um, you know, what they apply in the with the coach, that they, and they apply this rule in the NFL. Uh, whenever, uh, starting a few years ago, whenever there's a vacancy for a head coach in the NFL, they always make sure that at least one of the applicants uh, is an African-American. That's not a guarantee, but that rule has actually been very effective. If you look now in the NFL, there are more uh, black coaches in the country than there's been, uh, you know, 20 years ago. We've never seen as many coaches. So we think that um, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion in the, in the real estate-related careers, whether it's mortgage, et cetera, we need to make sure that companies adopt a Rooney Rule where they are, it pushes them to be more aggressive in an outreach. That's not a guarantee that's, that an African-American will um, uh, get the job, but if you have a diverse applicant pool, then you're what? More likely to get uh, more diverse employees. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, Amy, I don't want to wrap up without giving you the last word because this is really, um, you know, this is a Memphis program and we're interested in specifically, you know, promoting Black home ownership here in Memphis. So I know you're working with NARAB. What can we look for in terms of this campaign uh, and what can people do aside from calling you up and contributing to Dow Payment Assistance <laughs> Funds? <laughs> so um, right now we're NARAB and United Housing. We're working with the Mortgage Bankers Association um, called Convergence Memphis. And there's a virtual home buyer fair that's going to be happening uh, November 17th. And then again, I believe in January, depending on when this airs. But um, we also provide home buyer education um, virtually now. Um, and our next class is November 18th, and there's another one November 21st. So we are still offering our home buyer education curriculum online. Um, and then we also have great partners locally that um, we work with, lender partners for down payment assistance and closing cost assistance. Um, so we, we're there to help people, you know, go through the home buying process, but then also get, get access to that capital they might need to put down on a, on, a, on their investment in their home. Um, but we also, more than just promoting home ownership, we also want to preserve home ownership through home repair loans and post-purchase counseling. We know that there's a lot of homes with deferred maintenance. 
Um, and we want to make sure that those homes are, you know, in good condition. So if, you know, when the person does pass that they, number one, know how to will their property and then also that it's in a good condition to, to for someone to live in it later. So we do a lot of that um, as well. So you can go to our website at uhinc.org to find out more about all of those. So, Well, thank you both so much for being on the show. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of what's a really big an important topic, but this has been a great discussion. I've been talking to Amy Schaffline, who's executive director of United Housing here in Memphis, and Antoine Thompson, who's the national executive director of the National Association for Real Estate Brokers. We've been talking about promoting Black home, home ownership in Memphis. So thank you both for being on the show. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 Memphis. And I'm here with Cole Bradley, one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Cole. Thanks for having me back, Emily. I'm excited. So Cole, earlier in the show, I talked with Antoine Thompson from the National Association of Real Estate Brokers and Amy Schaffline from United Housing, who you know about Black home ownership, you know, nationally and locally. Of course, there's a huge gap in the black home ownership rates. We talked about a lot of different things impacting individuals and families. So I thought you and I could talk a few minutes about, look at it through the lens of neighborhoods. There are a lot of neighborhoods in Memphis that have had, you know, historically had high rates of African-American home ownership. Of course, Orange Mound, neighborhoods in North Memphis like Douglas and New Chicago that we know about. And of course, there's been a decline in that. And one of the reasons in recent years has been the number of investors that have come in to Memphis really in the wake of the, you know, the financial crisis of the mid 2000s. And Wall Street investors have come in and bought a tremendous amount of property for rental. Of course, there's been some local acquisition of rental housing as well. But I was reading the city's most recent state of, of affordable housing report. And that report noted that you know non-owner loans increased 300% between 2010 and 2017. And that's a direct reflection about, you know, most housing loans in Memphis, or a lot of them are not going to homeowners anymore. They're going to out-of-town investors or local investors. So that, that infects the inventory and I think has an impact on driving the homeownership breakdown as well. What do you think? I definitely think that it depreciates and suppresses, I should say, the homeownership rate. I mean, how it's a numbers game. How do you 
how do you have sufficient home ownership when that much of the stock is held up in rental? Um, and then, of course, it also impacts, I think, if we're talking about the neighborhood level, it impacts the culture of a neighborhood. It impacts the um, the strength of community, of um, sort of community action and investments, um, sense of identity, basic ability to get things done, to ask things of political leaders or to even just organize a neighborhood watch uh, and to hold one another accountable. So then you get all of these other issues that accompany these rentals, uh, high, high rates of rentalship in a neighborhood, like more blighted properties, more trash in the streets, um, unsecured properties, stray animals, things like that. And that also impacts the culture of a neighborhood as well as safety. Well, and when people, when there are houses available for sale in those neighborhoods, a lot of times the neighborhoods don't seem very attractive for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's, you know, home ownership, when you own a home, it is different how you how you perceive that piece of property, you know, how much you invest in it based on capability and income, obviously, you know, some people, elders, for example, might struggle to maintain a lawn, but it doesn't mean they don't want to. You feel differently about that property. And the same could be said for property owners who are out of state, out of town, out of country. A lot of them, they have no stake in the neighborhood. So yeah, they're not, they're not going to have the same level of care taken with uh, their properties beyond what's mandated for them typically. So what kinds of things have you seen neighborhoods do to, you know, take control of that situation to the extent that they can and to bring more control of land into the hands of the neighborhood and hopefully into the hands of homeowners? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that people do and neighborhoods do. And I think we've seen a lot of that. And you can start at the most basic level, you know, um, community members who get together to bring more of that just curb appeal to, you know, keep up with the trash, to report uh, high crime properties, you know, things where you've got a lot of vagrancy or maybe drug houses, things like that. And these neighbors who are accountable, uh, who typically are homeowners, you know, they're usually the ones who form the the base of these sort of uh, very grassroots neighborhood organizations. And you can start at that level. They're doing those things to make it to where when a young a young couple or a, a retiree or you know a new transplant from somewhere else comes into their neighborhood looking to purchase a home it looks like a neighborhood they want to live in and then you can go from there and look at you know we've talked about orange mound and the push to have you know home owners keep their properties pass down their properties to have people who are orange mound natives who maybe grew up in orange mound and left come back and buy properties again in the neighborhood and to really reclaim that history of self-sufficient land ownership and uh, land usage in orange mound we've also seen um, you know in Fraser they have the and you'll have to correct me on the actual phrasing but the idea of you can purchase a home and have a mortgage that is less than rent in Fraser and in many areas in Memphis. Yeah, I think it's why rent for 750 when you can buy for 480 in Fraser. Exactly. And so that's that's definitely a way to um to remind folks that there is plenty of housing stock available in these neighborhoods. It's quality housing stock in many cases, um especially out in Fraser. There's lots of great houses in Fraser. And to remind folks that those are affordable areas to live and they're good neighborhoods 
um, with lots of nice amenities and things like that. And then we also th- see things like in the Heights, for example, you know, Heights CDC, it's a small org, small team, but they're doing, you know, what they can. They own a few properties. They are doing responsible, uh, affordable rental ships. They're also working to help people, you know, purchase homes in the neighborhood and encouraging homeownership in the neighborhood. And their thing is, what is it? Jared will, Jared will, Myers will get on me, but I can't remember. It's 1,100 or 13. I think it's 1,300 vacant properties in that area that they just keep that number at their at the forefront and they tell people, you know, this is what's going on here. This is a great neighborhood to live in, but we got a lot of vacant properties. And if you don't come fill them, then those out of state and out of country companies are gonna. Well, and you mentioned Klondike Smoky City in an earlier conversation. Oh, yeah. They had... There's a lot of properties in that neighborhood uh, that are on the the city's land bank, basically in the vacant land inventory of local government. And they partnered with Neighborhood Preservation Inc. to actually transfer those properties into the hands of the Klondike Smoky City CDC. And I think that's a tangible example of a way the neighborhood can sort of take control of the property so it doesn't go into the yeah. hands of someone who's not invested in the neighborhood. And I know they eventually want to partner with other organizations and turn those into units for homeownership. Yeah, it's not only a great idea, but it was historic. I mean, that's the first time that the the land bank has undertaken anything like that. And I think in our work in North Memphis, both both when we were originally in Uptown, started talking about high ground stuff, um, but in our, our high ground work in North Memphis, originally when we were there um, in the Bearwater, Bickford, Uptown area, and then again, being in the greater North Memphis area, we've heard a lot of folks talking about um, fear of gentrification in North Memphis. That's a real big fear right now. And so this move, a lot of people in the neighborhood are definitely behind it as a way to prevent gentrification and ensure that they have a say in their neighborhood going forward. And that's the exact idea behind home ownership and encouraging home ownership is for people to want to say, you know, I have a stake here and and I want to see my neighborhood develop in a way that benefits me too. And that's, you know, that's why we ultimately, that's why we want to encourage homeownership is because we want people to invest first in their neighborhoods and then in the city. Well, and your point, it, it, a, lot of, a lot of these neighborhoods are potential redevelopment areas. Like I think Klondike Smoky City and also Orange Mound are in potential tax increment financing district. Yes. Uh, and then those become those become designated that way, they're going to be probably see a lot of needed community improvements, but the land will also probably become more valuable and potentially people could be priced out. Absolutely. So that's always a concern. um, I think that's, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know if I intended to sort of position it that way, but on some level what we're talking about is how neighborhoods and neighborhood based organizations can Inc- potentially increase home ownership in their areas, not through traditional tools like home buyer education, by just getting control of property and eventually making it available for that purpose. Yeah. And, you know, I think we, there's some of that in Binghampton as well with the, the land bank that the community land trust, I'm sorry, that they're 
you know, kind of assembling in Binghamton. I think there's a lot of drive across the city, particularly in these historic black neighborhoods and, and neighborhoods of um, sort of historic housing oppression where there has been a lot of this degradation. There's a, I think across the city, there's a move to think about how communities can do this for themselves and fix this problem for themselves. I do think Orange Mount is particularly interesting to me because one of the, the both challenges and benefits of Orange Mount is that the, you know, the parcels of land, so many of those were shotgun parcels. They're very small parcels of land. And they've passed through so many generations at this point that you've got, you know, five, 10 family members of varying levels of responsibility to a property who all have to be sorted through in order to do anything with that property. And it's both a problem for community members who want to, um, you know, retain ownership, uh, community ownership of this, but it's also helped make it harder to be gentrified. It is harder for Orange Mound, you know, for a company to come in and try to buy a bunch of parcels for a large development there. So I think that's actually an interesting place if anyone is uh, curious to to look into a specific example of how this is playing out. Orange Mount is very interesting to me. I agree with that. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR Memphis 91.7 FM, and I'm talking to Cole Bradley. So Cole, just changing the subject, one of the things that really was revealing about that conversation, confirming a lot of what I already knew, but still depressing in its own way, is just how much various kinds of discrimination, a lot of it rooted in public policy, have led to this gap in homeownership rates, have led to the racial wealth gap. And there were even some kinds of discrimination I wasn't aware of, like appraisal, appraisal yeah. discrimination. Yeah, I found that one really interesting too. I'm not, I had heard of that, but was not that well versed. That was very interesting. Well, one of the interesting things, and I think I don't remember if Antoine or Amy talked about this, but how all these things together have contributed to a devaluation of black neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the results of that is is less demand for home ownership from black millennials because they don't see the potential, certainly in terms of buying in those neighborhoods, they don't see the potential for accumulating assets the way their parents or grandparents might have because values aren't necessarily going to go up. And also they have just seen more and more things happen to remove their trust. I mean, redlining was one thing, but then we had the, you know, the Wells Fargo, the targeting of this, we had the subprime, and then we've had a series of different kinds of discrimination going on today. And so people don't trust the system. And that's also, if you don't have demand, you can have programs all day long to help people become homeowners, but they've got to want to do it. Yeah. You know, I think, I think this is an issue first off with millennials in general and now Gen Z. So let's not, let's not forget that the oldest millennials are turning 40 this year and that the, you know, the, the youngest millennials are well into their twenties at this point. And so Gen Z is actually graduating college and they are getting to the point where traditionally they could become homeowners, you know, early homeowners. And I think in general, being a very early millennial on the verge of 40, 
we don't, none of us trust the system. None of us have seen um, good things happen from in our, in our lives. From institutions. From institutions. I mean, we were, our lives were sort of set by 9-11, tragedy, big, big upheaval and social tragedies. And then our lives have been marked by the financial crisis and by the sort of large, uh, explosive capitalism of the 90s and watching what that happened to our parents and their wealth. We also, um, we don't have the job stability of previous generations. We don't have the wealth. None of us have the wealth of previous generations. And so that's not just an issue within the black community. But then in in addition, then you add on all of the very well-justified reasons that black Americans, uh, young black Americans have, you know, even more issue with this. Yeah. Why would you trust a system that has never worked for you? Why would you trust a system that intentionally devalues your neighborhood, not just from housing perspective, but also from a business perspective? Because, you know, when we talk about loans, the same thing is happening at the business level. And when we talk about discrimination of lenders and and discriminating against specific geographic areas. So, I mean, yeah, why would you trust that system? And so, and then again, exactly to your point, those areas are already, um, have already been, you know, had their home values suppressed to the point that, you know, in a lot of cases, a bank won't even give you a loan for a house in those areas because they know that they're not going to get their value worth on the loan. And so how do you even how do you even get a loan for a house for $60,000 in South Memphis when, you know, you may or may not have traditional credit, but regardless, that property is not worth the loan of the home. Right. Well, and and we should point out here, of course, that um, uh, people buy houses all over and a lot of black homeowners or black home buyers are buying homes in Bartlett and Cordova and Germantown and all different kinds of places. But for sure, um, certainly in the case of a neighborhood like Orange Mound, there's an effort to bring young black home buyers back in and to preserve that neighborhood's legacy and help people take advantage of a good values and all those things make make it make it more difficult to get a loan and and then make it you know the prospect of buying in that neighborhood less appealing for a variety of reasons. And then we also see things like Whitehaven. You know, uh, some of the stirrings that we've heard in Whitehaven, some of the things that we've heard community members say is that in Whitehaven they actually want they want higher um, higher value housing, new housing. There are younger people, um, you know, older millennials like myself who are interested in moving back into Whitehaven where they grew up, you know, Whitehaven was the happening place to be in the nineties for black families in, in Memphis. You know, that was the suburbs. That was the good life. And there are younger people who want to go and, and live there again, keeping in mind that Whitehaven actually has pretty high home ownership, but a lot of it has to do with the older folks who have retained their home ownership from the nineties, the eighties and the nineties. And they can't find the housing stock they want. And I'm not going to say that I know exactly what's going on there, but I, I don't think that I would lose a bet uh, if I made it against the fact that there are builders and lenders who just don't think that there's um, that there's that market there because it's a black neighborhood. I think that's true. So just finally, and this is, I guess, more of an observation than anything else, but interested in your thoughts about it. The um, Antoine Thompson, we were talking about some of the solutions for the problem. And 
one of the things we talked about was the need for, you know, more inconsistent down payment assistance programs. And of course, that's, that's on some level, the least sexy program, Mm -hmm. because it's been around for a long time, but it's critical to helping people buy homes. And he really used it. uh, He described it as uh, something a tool to address racial equity in the wake of George Floyd. And of course that makes sense, but I had not thought of it in that way that, that those kind of programs address those underlying issues that have led to the, the racial unrest we've had in this country. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're, you know, especially when we talk about folks who are qualifying for first time, uh, homeowners loans or who qualifying for like those cherry mortgages that are in that are for homes that are selling at a lower price in a neighborhood that's very likely been devalued. So if you took that same home and you dropped it into Midtown, it'd be a hundred and fifty thousand dollar house. But in Orange Mountain or South Memphis or whatever, it's a fifty thousand dollar house and banks don't want to make a loan that's that small. So if you're talking about, you know, something like that, um, where you know, it's a person who is attracted to that area. It's within their means. And they're really good about making regular payments to the bills that they owe. These are those um, those sort of non-traditional lines of credit that really benefit people who have been blocked out or um, of traditional credit lines, right? Like, like Black folks in the South in particular. And so if these folks can't, haven't had these traditional lines of credit, if their families haven't had these, and if family wealth is low, then that down payment of $5,000, $7,000 could be the only thing that's standing in their way because these non-traditional lines of credit where they can prove that they're good payers, you know, that they're reliable, that they can pay cell phone bills you know, on time, that they can pay rent on time, but it's that lump sum that's holding them back. And yeah, that's absolutely a way to level the playing field, as are those loans for those, quote unquote, risky properties in, quote unquote, risky neighborhoods with, quote unquote, risky borrowers. Right. Um, I think all of those are critical to getting more folks in. I mean, the fact that the thing that could be standing in the way of a person owning a house and renting a house and building wealth for themselves and their children, et cetera, is seven thousand dollars or twenty five hundred or twenty five hundred on a down payment and closing costs. And for twenty five hundred dollars, you can you can reestablish a line to the to the supposed American dream for an entire family and for generations of a family. Um, that should be a no brainer. I agree, and that's a great note to end on. Thanks, Emily. It was a lot of fun. Have a good one. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Thank you.